You're listening to The Razor's Edge. The Razor's Edge is an investing podcast. Your hosts are Akram's Razor, an investor and trader with decades of experience in markets, and me, Daniel Schwarzman, who has been focused on the market as a career for the past decade. We take investing ideas or themes we're interested in and break them down, or we speak with expert guests to get a wider understanding of a given topic. To get episodes of The Razor's Edge, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you have a chance, or share this show with a friend. You can also check out our work on Seeking Alpha under our respective names, or reach us on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman or at Akram's Razor. Our standard disclaimer and disclosure. The Razor's Edge is a Shortman Studios production. The views discussed belong to either Akram or me, respectively, or to our guests when we have them. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. We'll disclose any positions in any stocks discussed at the end of the podcast or during our introduction to the given episode. This week on The Razor's Edge, we're talking Netflix. As you may recall, Akram published a lengthy report late last year on why Netflix was and would remain the king of streaming. The company reported earnings last week, and it was a bit of a royal flex, as they beat on subscriber numbers and boasted that they would not need to raise debt capital going forward. The stock popped 17% the next day. So what did the market miss going in, and what does that mean for Netflix and peers going forward? We break it down answer a few listener questions, and try to figure out Netflix's future story. For disclosures this week, Akram is long Netflix, though stay tuned for how he's thinking about shares, Twitter, and PagerDuty. I am long Twitter and PagerDuty. All right, show's on. Akram, Netflix reported this week. I want to start with not exactly a challenge to how your thesis played out. Obviously, the stock went up, I think, 15% after earnings. The initial headlines were around subscriber ads, and then only later was there talk about the cash flow stuff. So your thesis was more about they're about to start minting cash. So what what do you make of the subscriber ads angle? Is that trivial? Does that Because my sense was that you had thought that had mostly played out at least in the U.S. and Canada. I mean, it, it did play out in the U.S. They had a really, really, really good quarter in in Europe. So, I mean, uh, pretty much if you, if you want to look at it from a lockdown, I mean, if you want to look at it from a quarterly standpoint, I mean, there was a few people before they reported talking about higher churn. There were some surveys. There was like, let's call it an uptick in bearishness going into the print. And there's that uptick in, in bearishness against the backdrop of, I don't know, the last three months have just like socially miserable as far as I'm concerned. So like, what is there to do but watch streaming? I mean, (laughs) anywhere. So it's like, particularly if you're like, uh, unless maybe you're in Miami Beach or on an island, but you've had notable lockdowns. You had a huge escalation in COVID. So who the fuck is going to cancel their subscription right now? It's like, I mean, like, that's kind of a common sense. So we we kind of had, you know, a couple of us had that conversation like a week ago. 
But, you know, the internet and FinTwit being what they will be, you know, some people got in the way of me going kamikaze Netflix calls in the quarter. But going to what I was focused on, look, Netflix is not, I mean, if you want to break this thing down from here, this wasn't like the quarter where it's like some people want to frame it as in, okay, they're talking about cash flow, the growth is over. It's, this is not that message. It wasn't like, hey, we've matured. Don't buy our stock because we're going to beat on on the subscribers like you're bringing up, right? People get really obsessed with the with the sub count, and Netflix has always been about guiding, you know, at least trying to guide to accuracy. At least that's what they publicly espouse, and they've emphasized that. So I think if you look at it, the resurgence of COVID led to more strength than they were expected, and if you're still in the camp that COVID dies and the vaccine and uh, by the beginning of spring, people are really, really dying to get out after this winter. They're going to have churn and there's going to be headwinds. I think what you got is, let's call it a little bit of a postponement there. I think, as you could see, the competition narrative, like, did you need to see the numbers? They raised prices last, you know, what, two months ago? They raised prices into like five new streaming entrants. There's a short thesis actually out on Curiosity Stream today that was kind of making fun of some of the content there. And then we find out that, you know, uh, Einhorn uh, owns Fubu, which is just even more interesting, particularly with the live in game betting angle. It's like that paragraph seems to have been written by someone who has not done live in game betting. But yeah, I mean, like that's when you get into like, if you go back to what I was thinking from why you would buy Netflix and why I picked some up and, you know, like 485 or whatever it was two months ago or so, and why I spent three months writing that monstrosity of a kind of a take on, on where they're at and why this is not a good time to, to play with them. You're playing with fire. They kind of just did that. This is something we were discussing as far as framing a financial narrative around a stock. And if you if you like remember that last section I had in that in, in the write up on Lord of the Stream, Return of the King, that's exactly what they did. I mean, Reed Hastings and Co. basically just came out. It's like, oh hey guys, you guys are getting into this new cool streaming thing, and you're getting excited about adding subscribers. <laughs> you want to buy stocks that are gonna be going direct to consumer with their media? Let me introduce you to our business model. You've been making fun of us for a decade. I mean, there's a guy on Twitter who trolls them a lot with the Netflix moniker. And I mean, he trolls everybody in the space regarding it. And actually kind of an intelligent guy, but I don't know, it's just kind of, you know, everybody has their thing. And that's his thing. And I, when I started reading these things and like getting active on FinTwit, I was like, come on, you, uh, the last thing you're going to make fun of Netflix on now is the balance sheet. Yes, maybe five years ago. Like, oh, they're borrowing so much money to finance their content strategy. And this is unsustainable and it'll collapse. And They'll never make money and so on and so forth. And like at the very same time, like people are talking about Bitcoin at, at 100,000 or a million and that like a dollar is not going to be worth the paper to wipe your ass with. You have people who are like, I just don't see how a $15 subscription for Netflix is going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like one, what is a $15 subscription? They're growing the, the average revenue per user at like 11, 12%. And like, we'll have subjective debates as if we're talking about like $2,017, let alone $2,000 or something, right? Netflix can today support what would be with their content spend, 
like $15, $16 easy. Is anybody canceling it because of that? So if you look at their average revenue per user global, and I actually, when I did it, I, I kind of stripped out and I looked at like, let's call it like the 200 million that's the developed world. And I, and I almost like excluded what would be, let's call it a, the emerging markets that they're in. And I just kind of viewed that opportunity. So like US, Europe, Japan, South Korea. And I look at that and I'm like, can that be a 200 you know, million subscriber business at like $15 on this type of content run rate spend wise? And my conclusion is yes. And my conclusion is if you're doing that $15, $16, it's like you're essentially adding to the bottom line if you brought the whole thing up to there as, as that addressable opportunity, $10 billion in EBITDA. And then you just kind of like look at Apple's multiple and it's like, yeah, can they get there by 2022? I'm thinking 2023. And it's hard to look at it and be like, why is why would anybody troll them for this financial? Like, oh, you, they burnt all this. Well, actually, it worked, right? And I think what what people like, and I mean, remember, I you know, this is a guy who wrote Netflix stories over in 2010, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, granted, it did fall 80 percent in the next 12 months, Daniel, <laughs> and they changed the model exactly what I said, and 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 Reed Hastings did come on 30 no days idea. later and say, cover your short. I mean, I'm I still waiting no for. I'm still waiting for the fact that you know, three <laughs> weeks after I write uh, why I fuck with Netflix, and you know, they're they're going to declare financial supremacy and mock the Netflix moniker that they just did that. And I mean, is he reading my stuff? Can I just get a thank you note? <laughs> you know, I don't want to take credit for business. At least I mean, a comp subscription or something. You know? Come on, read exactly right. One free month, please, or at least pick up some pick up some series that I'm interested in. But no, I mean, when you look at that, I, I, I viewed what they did as kind of a little bit of like a subtle flex. I, I will say like, you know, from for people who are intelligent in terms of discussing this, like I had a, a good conversation with Andrew from Hedgeye, who like he's he, he's been bearish on Netflix. But like, in my opinion, bearish for the right reasons. Like when you talk to him, the guy's extremely, extremely on point in what's going on in the space. We can have a conversation here whether or not you would want to own that stock because of what media as a standalone streaming business is going to be generating cash flow wise. Like when Netflix comes out and says, we'll be free cash flow positive from now and, you know, till the end of time, like, well, I mean, great guys, that's part of the, <laughs> you know, right. that's why that, you that, have a company. That's part of the, that is like literally the, the, the main goal of every single subscription business. It's, it, it's an embedded assumption. So like, for the stock to pop 18% or 17% or whatever it was yesterday. And for that to ignite a debate on like, well, they're now saying they're going to be free cash flow positive. Is this a cash flow story? And like that false start, you're like, no, it's just a realization of the economics of the business and that they're bearing fruit, that they actually control the levers. And I don't know if you saw, uh, Strategy did some stuff on it too, which some of it I disagreed with, but I mean, like people are like, you know, there's there's everyone trying to be like, well, here you go. This is what I told you. You, you know, you've got the, you know, the crowd of like Netflix with it. Like I bought Netflix 20 years ago and, and see here you it's been vindicated. I knew it when when I when I was when I was going there to order mail in DVDs of Avatar. I knew that I would be watching HBO in Indonesia. <laughs> right. It's your point. You made this point that the future's not written and it's so easy to 
talk. Well, I mean, I'm a firm believer you t- you in You made Yoda. it with, with Rami in talking about Amazon, this idea of like... Difficult to see the future is. <laughs> that's that's a more Disney, Disney uh, speech pattern. That's Star Wars, bro. I, that's what I'm saying. That's wrong. So let me... When you say they control the levers, I think this is worth unpacking a little bit. And first of all, just for some context, looking at their... Netflix does a great job publishing the regional information so you break down their subs. They added 855,000 net members in the United States and Canada. ARPU only went up 2% in the quarter. I think their price hike went into place at the end of the quarter. So it's. It, it, I think it kicks in officially in January. So. Yeah, yeah, I feel like my last charge was up a buck. So, in any case, so that's actually going to still play out. And I saw you you tweeted about, and maybe we can get into Stratechery from that, the point about operating margins. To me, the way I understand the story right now is the two things Netflix has won is that they have a wide enough subscriber base, as this is a point you've hammered on, a wide enough subscriber base that their non-content costs are efficient. It's sort of the way you look at a bank and you say... What's their non-interest cost, yeah, so, right? You know, it, it, it's where you look at economies of scale or economies of scope. It's wh- which one you want to get into the conversation. This is you're talking about economies of scale. You start the marginal dollar spread out over an ever-increasing base. Right. The question, I guess, because the other thing is then their content spend can be much more, first of all, theoretically, from having such a wider consumer base in theory that should fuel their flywheel they should know better what to produce etc but i think more compellingly is that they their content now in the u.s markets and they're the u.s first non-us is a big discussion but it can be more about customer retention than about customer acquisition and so then their non-us series or programming first of all nicely plays into People in the U.S. are watching, you know, I, I don't, Money Heist was a big example of something that people in the States were watching. Lupin, I think, the new French thing. A that's lot of, big. Cobra Kai, Bridgerton. But some of these are, what I'm saying is some, they're getting some economies of scale, even from the foreign language stuff. And they're just so much further ahead of everybody else from the, you know, of the yeah, names so I don't, we think okay, about so I'm not in the thinking about it from the, the way of, of spreading your content call. Yeah, any any content is obviously, depending on, on whether you're actually constrained by region, you know, license-wise. But, I mean, and, and that's where you get into acquired, developed originals, acquired originals, co-licensed originals, licensed originals, and then licensed second-run shows, you know, The Office, for example. But, like, if Netflix is distributing you know, the new Star Trek in the UK because CBS doesn't have distribution there. That's a licensed original. You're watching it for the first time in a geography in a market like that. This is where Netflix has has had huge advantage over everybody else. And this is where maybe you can get into a debate over, like if you look at a Disney or if you look at an HBO, they have typically licensed their content to regional networks. And in the UK, for example, Sky is essentially HBO. So they don't have a standalone brand. They're just, they're licensing you the content. And and this can be paid on a per sub basis. Like these deals are structured in that way. 
So it's not essentially a flat fee or whatnot. But the way they've approached it in those markets is, you know, get segmented. And, and part of it was always that, I mean, outside of the United States, pay TV, TAM has always been small. People don't pay, right? One thing Netflix has done really effectively is grow that. And from an unbundled offering standpoint, like when you think of HBO used to have the saying, you know, it's not television, it's HBO. That's really worked for Netflix abroad. There's always been this debate in the United States of like, can Netflix be TV? If if you get to such content scale and you're covering every genre, because Disney's very franchise content driven. Right now they're they're busy weaving every like you're committed into the MCU. And in theory, if I acquire if I acquire a, a franchise or Star Wars, I can keep weaving together. Yes, the actors will be expensive. Yes. The creative talent, and that's what we've had that debate, and I got into that in in the Netflix piece of like, well, does owning Spider-Man guarantee you the rights to have a blockbuster? No, it really hasn't, right? So maybe it lowers the there. There is that uh, what do you want to call it? Uh, loyal fan who's going to spend his money regardless, but you're always going to have to spend a ton of money on the actor. You're going to have to spend a ton of money on on, on the creative talent, and then. You spend a ton of money on marketing. I mean, well, that's one thing we're discovering now that's new, which is a, a change in the game. Like, you know, the budget of a of a blockbuster is essentially equal split, and sometimes even more in terms of marketing dollars. Like, what, like, what? Why you hear about a movie in the theater is uh, a lot of spend goes into the launch, right? Yeah, which when we think about the subscription model is where we talk about cost effect, customer acquisition, all that stuff. Yes. So when you go back to Netflix, I mean, we got a little bit off topic there, but when you go back to Netflix and you're thinking global, I don't look at it and say, oh, they're reducing the content cost because they have one piece in the US content that can be equally watched in France and Japan. That's part of the native element of their global distribution model, not being encumbered by the legacy distribution. Because everybody else was on a model that was like, hey, I'll take that. By the way, that's been a big thing for Netflix. Like, You watch Breaking Bad abroad on Netflix. I rewatched, I watched The Wire for the first time on Netflix. That's an HBO show. Because they gave them that content under the assumption that, well, that's added money for us because we're not getting any money in that market for, for whatever this window is to access our library. And that's where Netflix has, you know, leapfrogged from there into, well, we can produce a show in Spain that develops an audience in the United States and vice versa. Now, is there still some stuff that they're doing where like, you know, like the deal with CBS, like CBS is an interesting thing. They have all access in the United States and they're willing to go first run licensing outside with Netflix because of Netflix's global distribution power. And I think that's one thing where, where when people like yesterday are like, hey, Netflix growth story over free cash flow story and multiple compression. Like I talked to really smart guy, uh, Rising Sun, and he was making an argument around the, the, the same lines. And I was like, look, I disagree. And, and I mean, in his defense, he's essentially saying that there's better risk reward elsewhere from here going forward. And I completely agree with him on that. Buying Netflix at 480 was the assumption that you're not carrying much downside and you've got 20% upside. And you don't want to play with the with the potential risk that is the macro situation in the market. So that may have changed, but I'm not going to look at that and say because they stuck two sentences in where we don't need external financing that they've declared themselves as a cash cow. 
Well, but there is, so I, I, what I was getting at with the content, I misemphasized it a little bit. They do have that sort of shared content spend, but it's also more that their content spend in the U.S. with that subscriber base doesn't have to be as aggressive to maintain that subscriber base, maybe. So where they have to be aggressive is in the growth markets, right? Asia was a huge growth market for them last year. They went up over 50% in subscribers. So like that's a place where they have to play more aggressively and their agility, which is sort of what you get you got at instead of legacy licensing deals or I think about Peacock, for example, and the office is still available on Prime abroad. I don't I can't find Parks and Rec anywhere, but like it's just this content that isn't available in Spain anyways. But nevertheless, the story for Netflix, I think what you highlighted in your piece and what has played out, the story has changed, right? It was historically a subscriber growth. This is a sexy growth play. It's a little risky because they're piling on debt and it's at a high multiple, et cetera. But now the focus is going to be, they've just placed the focus, it seems like, despite my introduction, on their cash generation ability and reminded people that, yes, that's actually there. Does that... I don't know that I have a point there. I, I guess – do you – Okay, so let's re- let's rewind for a second. One thing that I took it where I disagree with on some people is that Netflix has been priced to acquire subscribers. Okay? I mean when you think about the cable bill and in the decline of cable, the, how it's it's probably going up slightly faster than it was going up in the you know five-year period before, like let's call it pre-2014. Like when you think about the pricing power that exists and how ESPN has gone from, I don't know, affiliate fees, you know, around $2 to $10 plus. When you think about that and you look at Netflix, a lot of people, like if you, if you looked at the conversation yesterday, it was like, okay, Netflix now becoming a free cash flow story, but maybe they spent less, you know, their marketing costs were obviously down significantly. I mean, they had a huge jump in 2018 to come down on, on, on an aggregate basis, but without question, in 2020 on a per size, just like if you look at the bottom line of Zoom, Netflix has had a ton of competition rise, but because of COVID, no problem. Well, and that's, I think that was what I was going to, that was where I was trying to go was how much credit or how much acceleration, to use our favorite word, does COVID account for? Like that must have moved up Netflix's break even point by, you know, yeah, at so least let's a say year it, or two. Let's say it pulls it over a year, pulls it in a year, a year and a half, but Again, that's because they decided to raise pricing too. These are things that happen all at the same time. But their pricing has been moving kind of at a steady state, at least in North America. You can, all right, back out Mexico when I say North America, you can at, let's call it 12%. So they have been increasing the pricing per sub in their most penetrated mature market, which is the goal once you hit penetration in a market. Now, what people don't look at when people look at Netflix, they still don't look at it and say, well, if if I give the hypothetical that Netflix is at 1080 and, and let's say they can go to, you know, $16. And remember, there's there's some people already paying $19 for Netflix, right? On the, you know, max 4K HDR. So when you look at it and you say they can get to this price blended across the board, well, I mean, what are you paying for internet, which is 
the, the main pain point where that where where cable has got you and they don't care anymore about the bundled TV, pay TV. But are you going to cancel this at twenty dollars? Like there's a there's a counter that oh yeah okay they can drive pricing, but that then they have to spend more on content. Disney and HBO have already told you the the rest of the gang are showing you what's what they're going to be spending, and they're not even going to get to. They're so far behind in what Netflix is spending. There's the assumption that Netflix can't doesn't control the throttle there somewhat because they've been way overspending and they've been way underpricing. That's how they disrupt it. That's when you look at it and say, well, they caused all this carnage. And that's why if you want to have a bearish thesis on this, which is where I think I, I always have good conversations with Andrew, is that what does steady state look like? I mean, when it goes back to our, our the criticism of third point being like, you know, you get if you just announce you're going to spend more money, Disney, you get an Adobe multiple. And you get on your way to getting a Netflix multiple per subscriber. And it's like, why? Netflix is is already where they're at because they broke down what you were doing beforehand. You're tr- tr- trading dollars. For them, it's been a greenfield. And you can still see it today, right? I mean, when you look abroad, you're talking at least with Warner 2024, 2023 with, with respect to uh, the Sky Now. And, and who owns Sky Now? Comcast. So those are two j- different conglomerates working together with how they're distributing content. And I think you're going to see, we're going to get to a point where there has to either be consolidation or some people exit. And I think maybe Netflix is trying to flex its position in this market because they know everyone who's competing with them is entering into like a a burn cash phase. So this is where you go back to some of the people who've trolled them, point to the companies who had really robust free cash flow in this space, media companies, who are now ripping it up. Like, I mean, if you look at HBO, like, and this was kind of a focus on the P's, they've been a very efficient content spend return on the subscriber. Like that's been running at a close to 40% EBITDA margin business with, let's call it something around 30 million subscribers in North America. And however you want to look at the blended licensing mix, whatever they're earning abroad on like, in, you know, in other let's call it 80, 90 million, 100 million people getting HBO content and, and the mix it gets from it. That's where you kind of have a problem. Like you could look at some of these companies and say, well, do they have an opportunity to be like Netflix, which is truly a global streaming service in all these other markets? And they, they've had licensing deals, they've had partners, like it's just, it's a mishmash for them where they're getting a net profit dollar and you want to turn that into a gross profit, a gross dollar, and what exact, how big do you have to get till that net dollar of doing your own distribution, your own billing, your own present, your own support, all these markets gets to? So I think when you look at the bearish argument on this, like, well, how many steady state direct streamers are there going to be one day? Like in the same way as you would look at cable and like how global will they be? And in perpetuity, what kind of return can we expect? That's where things get interesting. On the flip side, I think you can rewind and say, like, when we were talking about uh, strategy or, or the notes that came out yesterday where I was like, I, I disagreed on, like, I think there was an argument was like Netflix producing its own content is paying off for its margins. And that's where I'm like, all right, dude, I mean, like, it's a nice narrative, but. Ex- explain that because you had brought up HBO earlier and there, I know that's they pretty much always make their own content, but their operation operating margins have gone from 40 to 3% or whatever it was. And so and yeah, Netflix, because HBO is now in a situation where they've had to ramp up their spend, okay, on a smaller scale. 
again, it's, you know, customer acquisition costs essentially, but in, in their case, Netflix has been spending so much. What is it delivering to you? That's the whole point. It's the value proposition that there's so much on there that there's like, why would you ever think about canceling it? Now, HBO has been the other extreme. It's like, well, we just bring you hit shows. It's Sunday night. It's event driven. We own that night. And it's like, I'm going to watch these couple HBO shows. And, and they had that cycle going. I mean, this is where, where Netflix came in and, and kind of changed that game somewhat. But when you look at how content is produced, HBO has its own studio. They manage the talent. They may actually pick up stuff from a third-party provider, if you want to look at it as not being vertically integrated. But when you look at, at Netflix, essentially having their own studio, leasing their own physical space, approaching showrunners and signing deals, like when, what is making television and movies? It's about creators. I mean, that was kind of a resonating theme in my thesis, where it's like Disney can buy Marvel and they own Iron Man, but you needed Robert Downey Jr. and he gets like $100 million. Th th this is where you get into the debate on like how do fixed costs essentially, can you get scale and leverage on that in, in the media space? So one interesting thing about what Netflix is really showing here is that if you look at the way content was produced and financed pre the Netflix model, you had backends, performance-driven kind of financing structures. So like, I may get third-party financing. It's like, look, we can sell. We will sell the rights to your, for Europe for this show, or abroad overseas, and sometimes use that to finance production. Like, there's there's elements that have gone on. That. There's syndication, which was another place where you you could make money. So, that, like, the upfront cash cost potentially for a studio to make a film could be very notably de-risked. I mean, you look at this whole Warner thing recently, where. They had a $100 million co-financing slate deal with like uh, someone who's backed by a Canadian pension fund, like a financial investor. And one of the movies in there was The Joker. And The Joker had like a $50 million budget. And like the, these guys covered pretty much half of it. And then there was like a seven or eight other whatever movies that, that Warner was doing that, that these guys helped finance. But the return on The Joker was like hundreds of millions of dollars, right? It was like artsy, it was underpriced, but it did really well. And people are like, okay, well, why is AT&T, which bought Warner Studio, going into this? Like, what, what, why are, like, you know, they, they have subscribers, they have cash flow, they have access to the markets. Like, why is Joker a prime asset, which no way on $50 million budget is not breaking even, right? Even with marketing spend, maybe like you didn't want to market too aggressively because it was dark, but, why would you need an external co-financing partner? That's part of the way the business was done when you're the studios, because you use that property essentially to lure in people to participate in eight, nine other projects, right? Right. So when we get back to the point about the their Netflix creating their own content as being the reason for their operating margins, I think what you're saying is that it sort of misses the point. There's all different ways to fund the content. The difference with Netflix isn't so much that it's because their own content is making their margins better. It's because they've built that subscriber base such that they now have the flexibility. The, the content was important to grow their subscriber base. It wasn't important because they have more leverage over the spend. No, well, so so no, so I mean, where, where I was trying to get with get to with this point is, so the industry existed in this way where 
things are financed in a certain manner that allow back end and future revenue, you know, whether it be DVDs, whether it be international, whether it be streaming as a second avenue of revenue, all those things, what do they do in, in aggregate? They reduce the upfront cost of the development project, you know, that first run in like the United States. So you, you tie people in on the back end. So like if I'm a content creator, if, if I'm one of the artists, the talent, I will take less because I, if it's a huge hit, I expect to clean up on the syndication down the road and be, you know, the next office of Jerry Seinfeld. So people look at that and, and like you had that kind of incentive structure where you're making them participants. Netflix has always had, you don't come to Netflix and, and forget the licensing phase where it was just all licensing of someone else's content, where it's very clear you can have this, uh, this, this show in this market for this price for this many years. Your spend and what you're spending on it is matched to how the revenue is generated in that market. Now, they did get a good deal with Stars when they loopholed them their way in to Stars' uh, uh, output deal with the big studios, Sony, Disney, et cetera, or Fox, and managed to get like a backdoor on the movie Stars was, was getting to air on Netflix around financial crisis for $30 million. But what Netflix has been trying to do is, as others have gone into streaming, is start developing its own content. And there's been f- different phases of that. There was the like, hey, we'll ha- negotiate with a studio to do like a house of cards and we'll get the rights to it on Netflix in these markets. And then people are like, oh, by the way, house of cards is going to be available on this in Botswana and Netflix's model is broken. And it's like, well, I mean, when they contractually negotiated there, they didn't have any subscribers in Botswana. Right. So they didn't care. That was kind of like, hey, you want that? You want to go how to try to figure out money out of of it? That's potential upside, just like merchandising and so many other things are potential ancillary revenue streams if something has turned into a hit down the road. But in the here and now, when when you approach a Netflix and if it was like five years ago and you're negotiating with them, you kind of had pretty good visibility in what they're dealing with. And Netflix kind of had pretty good visibility on what it wanted. What's happened is the industry has changed. And in the, t- in the time period the industry has changed, like everybody else making content now has more upfront costs because they no longer have Netflix bidding on the content, for example, for you know, this market abroad. They no longer have DVD as a, you know, a second avenue. This was how their business model worked. Netflix's business model has always been one layer of, of, of revenue around it. So there has been this perception, I would say, that Netflix buys from Hollywood studios, which are also owned, essentially speaking, by their competitors, these days, AT&T and Disney and whatnot. They buy from them and they're paying that profit margin up above and beyond the cost, right? Like if you, if you order a show like, like The Crown from Sony, okay, Netflix is paying Sony to make that show and 20, 30, 40%, a little bit above that cost to Sony. You know, that's their margin. What Netflix has been doing in producing its own content and, you know, physically setting up a lot and having its own studio and being like, okay, the creator of that show or this best showrunner, we're going to bring them in house. We'll sign a five year, $150 million deal and you make shows for us, right? The argument that that 
change right there, which is like, you know, I don't know where they're at now on that. Maybe let's call it 25, 30% of their annual content spend is what's leading to margin expansion and free cash flow being positive. That's what I took. Like, I was like, no, like, I mean, it's, this is, that's not a notable driver. Yes. In theory, there's an, it can be advantageous, but to do that, you had to go poach a creator and you had to bring them over here. There's an assumption that you're getting someone undervalued. Yes, you cut out the middleman, so to speak, but for that to work on, on the scale Netflix is producing content is you have to get, get tremendous economies of scale by creating your own studio. And that's where you can produce everything for the planet on 20 billion. And you can't because that's where Netflix's strength is, is internationally, is they are working with third party, like different independent creators of content. They do still work with someone like Sony who has his, uh, doesn't have his own distribution, but you don't hear this get like come up in like when, when you talk about Amazon and the boys, no one's like, oh, okay, that's not really their own show. They ordered it from so-and-so or, or Apple and, and Ted Lasso. That's Warner Brothers. That could have easily gone to HBO. It didn't because Apple ordered it. But the studio that made it is Warner Brothers. They have the lot. They, they manage the talent. They do everything. They hire them. They pay them whatever. And Apple gets to slap their logo on it and charge the subscribers. And they have it for whatever time period that they've contracted for that original show that it lives for them. Maybe one day there's a potential ancillary revenue stream, but with so much content, the industry has changed in a matter that doesn't exist. What's the residual worth now? Am I going to be watching, am I going to be negotiating Cobra Kai's rights you know, in, in 10 years and they're going to be like Seinfeld? If you believe that, that's a different story. But the whole premise of DTC is that it's all there for you. Maybe at some point they do. They start pulling stuff off and they go to some sort of tier, like the equivalent of uh, DTC syndication aggregator, right? And they all get together and do that. But I, I, I don't think that's the case. So, so when, I, when I look at the company, Netflix is expected to make money based on they, they, they can target their own margins and their own spend and what they think their subscribers will pay without elevating churn. And they've been underpriced on that and leveraging them. It's the same reason, why doesn't Netflix offer an annual subscription at a 20% discount? Like just the common thing that happens in, uh, in subscription SaaS. Subscription business, yeah. It's essentially financing, right? When you do that. So people would look at it and be like, well, getting excited about them being free cash flow positive. Well, they could probably pull forward three, four billion easy. No problem by doing that. Why haven't they done that? Because they have a capacity to take on more debt. They have a capacity to service it. The cost of capital is lower. And that's what they've been playing. They're, they've actually been very good with their capital structure and taking advantage of it. Now you could people could argue now today like well you know what comes next like oh I don't want I don't want to buy a company that's buying back stock you know what's a good analogy of this Apple company that really hasn't grown operating income in several years but do you remember when Apple went through that phase it's like what's next and it's a mature phase and Warren Buffett came in and it's like why is he doing it now and the stock took off I mean yes down the road there was another cycle and you've had price strength in the iPhone like uh, uh, you know almost. $500 in ASP growth. But if you look back on it, it's not like much changed in that window where it re-rated other than the way the market looked at the robustness, the durability of their cash flows. And that changed the way the multiple that was applied on the stock. 
Yeah. Well, which period with Apple, just quickly for listeners and for me, are you talking about? Because I feel like there's been a couple of sort of, there's, I'm just looking back at the chart and trying to jog my memory. There's the 2015, 16 period where they're kind of flat. There's, I guess that's probably it, right? That's like the- Where the stock, where the stock took off, but there wasn't much change, much expansion in earnings at all. Right. I mean, people look at it today and say, well, I mean, the stock is worth three times what and like and hasn't passed whatever it was 2016. What was the last peak? Apple has their diluted EPS is three dollars twenty eight as of last fiscal year. It was two ninety-eight in you can't look year. at a diluted EPS because they're buying back a ton of stock. I'm talking about operating income. Fine. Fair enough. Yeah, it's it's flat. It's flat over the past two years, and it's marginally higher than it was in 2015, fiscal year 2015. Yeah, and what is what is the share price done in that time period? It's six x maybe. Yeah, I mean, there's okay. I mean, and there's an element there, obviously. That's the the, the market, the market, and money printing, and low rates, and blah 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 blah. Burr. But there was at the time before that 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 occurred that the viewpoint changed on what the multiple should be, which is, which goes back to the argument I was making on the Netflix write-up where I was like, look, Apple's at like 27 times EBITDA. Netflix is doing about 5 billion in EBITDA this year. And that's with like an ARPU, like just under 11. Let's assume that ARPU was 15. Forget how many more subs they can add. If that ARPU was $15 and it was getting Netflix's multiple today, you you know, you'd be talking what? You're adding $4 per sub, $208 million, 10, I'll call it $10 billion in EBITDA, $14 billion times 27. Mm, you know, you get up to like $350 billion or whatever it is an enterprise value. And oh, is it undergeared also? Yes, it is. You can make these hypos. The counter will be like, okay, well, that's ridiculous. How much more content will they spend? How can you assume the same margins? It is, well, I'm telling you that it is my viewpoint this thing is so drastically underpriced that like that's kind of implied in there now could things change and apple and amazon's commitment to content approaches netflix's levels and everyone's willing to lose money at that scale yeah maybe there is a question where you want to like which we started with like is being just a media company and looking to just make money off the media is that an attractive business this is a conversation I have with 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 Andrew, and like I think that's a fair question to ask, don't you? If the argument is that like HBO is approaching this for you know time uh, AT and T subscriber retention, and Disney is its own like you know it wants to drive its fly flywheel on theme parks and, and and whatever, and Amazon is using it as an overall retention driver for its customer you know experience and shopping and e commerce, and and Apple is using it to you know keep you buying new phones. Be permanently stuck in you know their their almost utility day to day of your life ecosystem. So if all of them are doing that and bundling with it, then what, are, what like what's the value of a standalone business? Because everybody else is kind of kind of running like what, what you need to be that much better than them at what they're doing uh, on the side. But that so that's the potential change. But so far it's pretty. You know, and that's where you draw the point to the subscribers this year and everything else. So far, there's been no sign that anything is going to really take away from net. Like it's 
possible that things will grow, that Disney will become a solid number two, that HBO will become a solid number two or three. But it doesn't seem like that's going to cause anybody to cancel their subscription, even if, as I think you've said, as our poo goes up to 20 bucks a month or whatever like that. That's the moat that Netflix has built. That that to me is, seems to be the sort of yeah, two sentence it, summary. It's, is it is has it become a utility, and and is it so unique in the fact that it's global in nature? And like, yeah, you don't like you, trading a utility is not like trading Tesla, or SPAC IPOQ, right? But <laughs> uh, Tesla's it, not a utility yet. I mean, the the argument is that that it one day will be. When you look at Netflix and you say, "What is it? Two hundred, two hundred, two three million global subscribers." Yeah, two hundred. It's just over two hundred. It looks like. And you know, guidance for what six another seven million or so next quarter or eight million. They're giving these numbers for our listeners. Let's just be very very straightforward. You have headwinds in the back of the year. I think some people expected the headwinds at the start of this year to start developing earlier in 2021. Yeah. I think like right around now, like you had some people who are just like, you know, you got wonder woman 84, you got this, you got, you know, soul, you got uh, Disney starting. There was like that survey that, that one analyst shared where the, the highest he'd ever seen people say they were willing to cancel Netflix. Those were your negative, your negative points. I think the entire streaming landscape is facing a horrible back half comp on 2020 in 2021, unless we're in the, still in the midst of a, a disastrous pandemic. And even then, like you're going to get to a point where people are going to be like, what can I cancel? Because I want to save money because that's what's going to be the situation. And there's no multiple expansion or anything like that. Like we can get into the macro element of that later. But if we're still in a, a not being able to spend as much time outside as you'd like and socializing in person, there isn't like there isn't like a boom in the back half of this year compared to right now. It's harder to get any better than it is now. The amount of time and attention that these services have of you, which is, goes back to why Quibi got so much shit. It's counterintuitive that it wasn't on the go, but the initial assumption was, oh my God, we're launching Quibi and there's a pandemic. Amazing. It, the format of the content and, and where they fit into the spectrum. But I think more so than like the value proposition that's coming out of everybody else, it's it's harder to differentiate. And that's where I think, where I think Netflix is, you have a really hard time criticizing them based on what they're putting up and the performance they're delivering on that factor. They're clearly at a level that's difficult to compete with. So we got a handful of questions coming in from Twitter and elsewhere. That I want to get to, but just what's your out like going forward? You're thinking about the shares. You, I think you made the point. There's a distinction between 480 and 570. But like, what are you? How are you thinking about Netflix given their path to ARPU growth and everything else? Like, how are you thinking about the shares? I haven't sold yet, but I I will probably be selling it and moving it into Twitter. That's what is going on in my head right now. But I mean, it, the, the idea was to make 20 percent and have something that was risk. This is where I agree with the rising sun. who was actually arguing about Google. I, there's better opportunities elsewhere, but downside wise, I think you're in good shape. 
I mean, if you're a long only buy and hold type of guy who has had a really good year and wants to de-risk his exposure somewhat, I don't think you can go wrong with you know, moving some of it to it. But I do think you're in a, you, you do not want to own these stocks going into the end of the year. Because at that point, the news flow is just going to be too... I, just, I think people are going to be really focused on, on spending time outside and traveling, you know, laser focus on getting vaccinated and being able to do things that they have not been able to do. And particularly with the, the, the seasonal nature of the COVID uptick uh, coinciding with uh, these other variables in the market, the election and all these other things, there's better things to do. I, I thought this would take a year. Maybe. I mean, if you noticed it, it, it was a notable underperformer over the last six months. It was probably like down ten percent right, versus like sluggish since yeah. The so it essentially closed this underperformance gap in a day, which is not exactly shocking, by the way. Under COVID, I mean, yeah, Netflix did add like it did have its biggest move in forever, and but this is not like twenty percent moves are not uh, they're not crazy for Netflix. It's, it does this very regularly. I do think it's caused a bit of controversy with this. Does it deserve multiple compression? Right. Yeah, that was and one of the bare that's, narratives. That's, that's where you get into like, look, Netflix is on a thirty billion dollar, you know, run rate for for twenty twenty one. I mean, like, if you do it on a trailing twelve month basis, like, what you're talking about, like a you know, close to twenty five billion dollars in revenue, and it was about a two hundred and fifteen billion dollar EV when I first looked at it, and. Roku is like I don't know 55 billion uh, against about like 1 1.04 billion in platform revenue. So very different types. Uh, one's a subscription business, one really isn't. I mean it has a little bit in there where it's reselling, but it's an example both of them are kind of secular things on streaming and you look at it and you say, well, I mean it's 25 times the size. It's completely global in nature, and it's only four times. So that, that that was part of like where I initially got interested in looking at it. So yeah, maybe if I was holding, if I was long Roku and I had a banner year, I you know I'd swap into Netflix if I wanted to be defensive, which would have been a nice move 48 hours ago. So like I think you can expect a, a market performance here. I think you got your outperformance. You went from underperform to outperform to market perform. That's where you got to be realistic. Does it have more upside? I mean, I was discussing this with SaaS bad boy, Justin Sepka, and he's like, it's, you got at least 10, 15 more percent. And pretty much he's always right on these things these days. You might as well just rub him as an eight. And he's like the magic Buddha eight ball. But I mean, if you want to take that trading tr trading mindset, yeah, I think, uh, I think the stock could go higher. I don't think anyone owning it here can't be anything but confident about it. I also like the fact that the management team did what they did. Thinking about selling this to buy Twitter, it gives you a little bit of a pause because these guys did exactly what they should do here. They've been trolled for being Netflix, and they just came out like, hey, everybody else in the industry is about to burn cash to be like us, to get our multiple. And oh, by the way, we don't need anybody else's money. Okay. We're, me, we're uh, self funding. So, do you think I, like, this is a communications win, the fact that they knew what to say? Or do you think this is more a reflection of all the things they did to get to the point where they don't need the debt anymore? 
Well, I think it's a communications win. I don't think it's about anything about like they stuck in the shareholder letter the history of the stock performance. And Cap Twilio, who knows this well, had told me an interesting story about that a while back. I'm not going to get into it. But Reed is very proud of the performance. And you should be when you 50,000%. I mean, I've been trading this thing since this started. Like, what do you want me to say? Like, I look at it, I'm like, huh, bought Netflix, got cast away on an island like Tom Hanks. I came back. (laughs) Right. It's always hard. Like, why do any analysis of anything? And, you know, there are some people who look at it that way. They're like, I was in early and I saw it coming. And it's like, well, no, you didn't. (laughs) You know? I mean, we've seen it in real time because they didn't really see it coming. Other people made mistakes. They've adjusted. They've done certain things. And even to this day, they kind of have to defend themselves. So for all that the stocks accomplished, it is kind of truly remarkable that they have to come out and be like, hey, we're going to be free cash flow positive. We don't need to borrow. They could stick another $25 billion of debt on this thing. Like easy. Like who's even talking? $7 billion in gross debt on a $250 billion EV company? Like wake the hell up, people. Sorry, net debt, not gross. But like, are, is anybody else looking at what's going on in the market? And they sell, they sell globally subscriptions for television, premium K, pay TV. If you're not comfortable with that gearing up some more, what are you comfortable with? So them, them say, like, I was actually surprised that they gave a capital structure t- target of 10 to 15 billion. It's like, you can definitely absorb more. I think what's interesting with respect to them is what comes next. What are they thinking about? Like in, in, inside the same type of conversations you have about things like Apple or whoever, are they thinking about gaming? They got us excited about, I was talking about this with Andrew again, where they got, they got you excited with, what's that show I love? Dark Mirror. Black Mirror? Is it Black Mirror? Black Mirror, yes. The sci-fi where they did the- uh, There was an inter- Bandersnatch. Like, Bandersnatch. Choose your own adventure. Yes, thing. choose your own adventure. Like the old choose your own adventure comics. Yeah, which is by the way like what that. what uh, Tom Hanks's character in Big was working on before he be- went back to being a kid. That so like when you think about that, the potential of what they could be doing, like people are like, hey, you know, could they buy Roblox? Could they have bought <laughs> Twitch? What's what's going on in the Idea Factory, or do they just want to take Cobra Kai and get Elizabeth Shue on and you know pick it up, pick the scraps up off of YouTube's uh, floor and turn it into a hit? And generate some free cash flow. Is that what being a Netflix investor is now? That that's kind of the kind of the throw shade at them. What's next? And I don't really know. I mean, I have no idea, but I don't necessarily think there needs to like keep making really good content and people want to be entertained. Right. And that was the whole reason I stuck uh, Maximus Decimus Meridius in there. Are you not entertained? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, you would hope that the global TV market and you know, I it, especially in this environment, we didn't get into their whether they have production advantages in the COVID environment. But like, I know my wife feels like she's run out of stuff to watch half the time. But then Lupin came out, and she was really excited to see. Yeah, that's that. really like, big over there in Spain, huh? Rich was talking about it too. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. don't watch it yet. Yeah, it was. I, I I'm Taking just not Europe a by t- storm. I'm really not a TV guy, and so I'm still. I'm working through my Netflix that I'm working through is. There's a document, but you know, and they're very good on documentaries. There's a documentary about rock and Spanish in Latin America, and so that's that's my Netflix right now. But yeah, I just watched the night the the Night Strangler, okay, Night Stalker, Richard right. Rodriguez. Let's get a few questions that came. We had two questions come in on Twitter, and one that came in through the Slack you run. 
Let's start with one of them on Twitter, which is Jesse Krieger at J5Ive. And this is a good one because this is something I think the first time we talked about Netflix on this podcast, we addressed a little bit. Recommendation algo is still trash. Searching still hard. How crucial is a Pandora-esque channel that's autoplaying intelligently targeted content that users don't have to find and that's not just pushing Netflix original content? Okay, yeah, they put that in the shareholder letter. So how important is that, do you think? How important? Well, let's that agree out? that like on the call, they were discussing that they haven't come up with a name yet for the shuffle button. Okay. And I was thinking, you know, Magic 8-Ball or Mirror, Mirror on the Wall. Mirror, Mirror on the Wall feels a little long. I feel like the Magic Mirror, <laughs> maybe. Uh, the Looking or, Glass. I mean, anything that, that you can look at and be like, just, you know, surprise me. Surprise me is not a bad. But, okay, so this is definitely a problem Netflix has. We've debated this endlessly. I actually had this conversation with James Wang from from ARC uh, like a year or two ago about solving their their discoverability problem. He had some really good ideas there. I mean, I I think part of what they do here is feed you a – is this going to be something that turns into – TikTok, and it starts reinforcing and feeding me in the same way social media does. I don't necessarily think what you watch content-wise works in that way. I think you come into Netflix in the same way you go to the movies and in the same way HBO, it's around your peer network and what you hear and what creates buzz and what gets to that level. I think the top 10 was a genius maneuver, and I think that's better than the shuffle. Because that kind of just let, like, I mean, it's like the box office record grossing movie broke all records. That makes you want to go see it. <laughs> I mean, that like that was part of the driving force of the event nature of the opening weekend piling in. Like, what did what drove people to the theater, and was it that good that like you know it sells out and it gets to the next level and everybody? So if it climbed to the top of the charts, just like a song, the billboards. Same thing, like it climbs number one on the charts and here's your favorite song today. I mean, you're the music guy. But is there, what I wonder is so much of, when I think about shows I end up watching, it's usually Ted Lasso is an example. You had been mentioning it. I think I saw a couple other people in different worlds mentioning it. And I finally said, all right, what the hell? I'll give it a shot. And then, then it'd be something I could watch with my wife and so on. I wonder if there is a social element that they can bring in, or if, again, maybe this is a distraction, but if there's some sort of integration or some where those top tens, because the top 10, I get why it's a popular feature, but it does always, it also seems like a little random and a little weird. I just wonder if there's maybe a way to specialize that a little more or to make that a little bit more. Cause it's funny. It is funny to me when I scroll down my Netflix homepage and it's like, they'll, they'll basically sh- tip their hand on what they're doing, right? They'll say shows with a strong female lead or historical documentaries on music, et et cetera. And so they'll like, they'll tell you what they know about you. But I wonder if that recommendation, bringing in the social recommendation element in some way might be, because I think what's the challenge for them is that it's paralyzing, as you've said. And this is why the office is so popular is because you just know, all right, I'll enjoy that. And I won't have to think hard. And I know what I'm going to get in for my investment of time. 
And I think that's I mean, it's the, really amazing how good the office is. I, I finally watched it this year, but during pandemic here, it's on an Amazon. And yeah, it was like, <laughs> look, I can hardly get through a full episode without needing to take a break because something really it's the same problem I have with succession. I'm not through the second season of succession because I can't. It's just like so painful. I, I have too much empathy for fake people in the characters on these shows, and I just can't like get through them fast enough it's really a problem well i mean dwight trude is and michael c scott are and jim are you know a staple of many people's lives I, I, look when you're going to commit a certain amount of time to content to just to be on to like focus on his question my answer to that question is unlike music because he does the he asked about pandora and i think unlike stuff on social media the amount of time that has to be committed and focused in today's add environment for content does not lend itself to just suggesting something to me to commit to it. So the threshold to get me to watch something, uh, this is where you go back to what Disney does very well. Like I was delighted is the way I described what Marvel did with WandaVision for the first two episodes, particularly in, in, in the way like they took what bewitched and you know I'm sure many people haven't are, are now part of a generation that haven't even seen the, the old bewitched TV show. But when I looked at that, I was just like, it, it reminded me of, of when I watched uh, Logan for for X-Men and like, you know, kind of like a dark post-apocalyptic Western style feel to it and not really about the superheroes and their powers and the special effects. And I mean, Marvel has been really good at the storytelling there and weaving it together and they get you vested and they show that they can kind of turn the superhero into pretty much anything. It can be, a, it can be like, you know, uh, uh, we can go down a rabbit hole and see what their lives are like living together. And that turns it into almost unlimited, but it's the commitment that you have. Like if you don't commit to the whole story, to the, to the arc, when you actually exit, you're no longer vested. Like this happened to me with the WB. And I talked to, you know, I have, I have a really good friend who's, might as well have a PhD in this in this space. Like, I mean, he's just encyclopedic. And discussing superhero content is like philosophy to him. And when you get to a point, like there's just a certain point where the, I would call it both the, the, the TV series Marvel, which was like Daredevil, Punisher, and uh, that genre, and like the Flash, Gotham, et cetera, on, on the WB side, both of them, you just, at some point I lost interest. It was too much. And it had nothing to do with the quality of the content. It had to do with that I just didn't want to be vested anymore time-wise. It's just an immense commitment. And you want something else. And like that's, that's where I think Netflix throws everything at you. I watch a documentary, watch Cobra Kai. I binge old episode of Breaking Bad. Uh, if I'm abroad, you can still do The Office. Their top 10 is like something interesting happening that everybody else is into, like in the same way it would be like this, like Lupin, for example, it's, is, is like, is one where I'm like, what's what, what, why is this? I'm curious now, right? Why is this a big deal in Europe? Why are people talking about it? And that's what they can do well. So when you look at that, I don't necessarily know that that's algorithmic. It doesn't require like what causes that they throw so much at there that some of it's going to like content quality has gotten really good. So I would say that I don't think that like 
I'm not concerned with them being able to maintain engagement. Put it that way. Like they're always going to have something that that works that way. And I don't think anyone is cracking the code on a recommendation engine that just feeds me great content because it, there is a subjectivity element. Some people hate stuff that has anything, you know, superhero themed. Some people don't like dry humor. Some people cannot watch reality television at all. Some people will never watch a documentary. They're not remotely interested in it. Yeah, I think I'll just say, having worked in content at Seeking Alpha, obviously a different vertical and everything else. But I do think on the one hand, Netflix, as you made the point, has such a wide array that they should be able to find you something of decent quality in whatever you want. I think that's an advantage from their content spend over the years. And yeah, I think the question is right as far as the problem, the solution. It could be more curation. It could be more that social element, that top tell. There's there's probably something that needs to be done. Maybe the search gets better. I find the search frustrating when I'm looking for like old movies that I want to see if Netflix has them versus somebody else. But yeah, so I think that's fair. That would be something that would be interesting if they could all consolidate where the shows are on anything. Like if I want to watch, you know, Jack Reacher, okay, and find out what streaming service I'm subscribing to has it. Right. Yeah. Versus going to Netflix, going to everybody else. But I will say this, everybody else's interfaces for stuff like this is horrible in comparison to what Netflix is doing. So yeah, like even if, Amazon if, if you're, is not if, good. Yeah. If you're criticizing their search, their search is honestly way better than anybody else's. HBO's is okay, I find, but they do, they don't have the same volume by any means. So it's a different story. Okay. Another question. This came in from the uh, from XQGL. What do you could you talk a bit about Netflix strategy of how it may be evolving with respect to evergreen type content? In the earlier Netflix days, Reed placed a big emphasis on that. Nowadays, things have changed a bit. Different mix of license versus original. Netflix seems to be doing more short term stuff like reality shows. So, and that maybe feeds plays off of what we were just talking about but how do you what do you take about their content strategy and what sorts of and you know we maybe don't need to bring up the residual stuff again but yeah i feel like we touched on a decent amount of this i will say something which i which i did try to highlight in in the write-up which i don't think comes up which goes back to the the conversation on our margins going to expand because i'm not paying a third party into third party Hollywood studio if I'm doing it in-house to develop my content and I'm and I'm let, let's essentially vertically integrated. I have my own studio, my own lot, my own production team, et cetera. And what is one key takeaway is on original brand new content, particularly like let's call it the big budget first run stuff, is the cost is very high. So people may be like, wow, you know, they spent uh, you know, hundred million dollars on a year on 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 Seinfeld, or or they're paying whatever for the office. And when you break it down for per hour on the syndicated library stuff that has the, the demand it has, I mean, it's very efficient versus new shows that can go up to thirteen, fifteen million dollars an episode, right? With right. less, with less surety about how much, and that's why you're seeing watch. them cancel stuff. Now, this is where you get into the the 
discovery and reality TV and the money you can make and the margin profile of that business. Remember, Netflix had a deal with Discovery. And when Discovery and Netflix split, people were like, oh, Netflix is going to be finished because they have a bunch of that content. And it's not like Netflix has had a problem coming up with shows in, in that space. Yes, I think that everything has its mix for them. And what, will, what will be interesting to see is what everybody else does there more. Like, H, this has not been an area HBO has played in. Like, is HBO Max going to play more aggressively in there? This has not been an area you really associate with Disney. Are we going to see, I mean, Disney's had its kids and, and whatnot channel, but are you going to see them go into that a little bit more? So this is where you look at other people in that space. But I, I think they're like, I think they have a pretty clear strategy. They're getting, they're trying to get the best creators on board. And I mean, that goes back to like the Dave Chappelle and this whole, like, you know, you know why you should fuck with Netflix stock. Excuse the language, but like. It's a little late like, for that. Yeah, but I'm saying going with the way he he framed it, why I fuck with Netflix. I like that part because – and he's probably wrong on a lot of the reasons he's better at the rest of the industry. But they are keeping the talent happy, and the talent wants to work work with them. So if you saw after the Disney – this is, goes back to this whole concept of flexing. I mean after Disney's analyst day and Disney's stock price move and Warner Brothers going day and date on all its films and like – Everybody else making noise, 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 noise. Netflix felt like it had to do that, like oh, a movie a week trailer, and they pretty much got everybody. They went, and they got, you know, they went and got Wonder Woman. They got The Rock. They put they put together the top notch, you know, celebrities, Leonardo DiCaprio, etc. And they're like, everybody's everybody's doing business with us. That's the message, and we're going to be bringing you something every week. So, just like. Disney talking about spending $4 billion more and ho hoping to get to what was their target? Something around, you know, 12 to 14 billion by 2024, you know, Netflix is probably going to do maybe 17, 18 billion in cash content spend this year. So they're way ahead of everybody else. If they were to pull back and everybody else is just to hold, hold for it, it's it's gonna feel like a, a depression in Hollywood. I mean, how how long have people been talking about trying to nail peak television? I mean, where are you on this? Like, what do you think happens with the movie theater? That's another like Paramount is now talking about their event. I saw uh, Matthew Ball tweeting about uh, he tweeted it that the doors to the Paramount Plus event look like Top Gun, and then supposedly the Viacom. CBS account liked it and then didn't like it and then unliked it. Uh, and oh, like, right. this is like the, yeah, I the, saw, the, I saw the chat. like, not, yeah, the, the, not the unlike. Yeah. The chatter of whether or not Top Gun is going to be going straight to streaming. Now I will tell you if Top Gun is going straight to streaming, I have to pay Paramount plus <laughs> at least for one month. That is a, right? that, that's its own danger zone right there. Exactly. So like, Oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> yeah, I've got a few, got a your, few G's up my sleeve. A few that's, tricks. That's your own highway to the danger zone. Oh, it's pretty, pretty on pitch. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just feel like theaters are a little bit disadvantaged from other snapbacks because they're still. 
they're still indoors. I feel like if you're thinking about all the other travel, I mean, social experiences, I do think are going to reset. But I think movie theaters specifically were not in the greatest space. And I so I think they probably do get into more of the. You know, sort of where they were going already, right? It blockbuster or like high cultural experience where people who want to feel I was going to use snobs not as a, I, you know, not negatively per se, but the people who want to feel more culturally want to have a night out that's more cultural. I mean, Rami was saying last week or the last one we spoke with him about he's only going out to eat if it's really special. I think that's sort of where movies go. I don't think you're going to go out to watch. But weren't they there already? I mean, it was like, what movies have I seen? I saw The Joker in the theater. I think it was the last one maybe I saw. Oh, no, I watched that Guy Ritchie, uh, the, the, mo- the Hugh Grant, like, Matthew McConaughey one. I mean, we, people might disagree because I actually I wasn't crazy about this movie. I think you liked it because I think you mentioned it. Ford versus F- Ferrari. Yep, me, solid I, one. I, I saw that. To me, you are that's, not Henry Ford. You are Henry Ford Jr. <laughs> I, I just think that's like a – that to me is like a – middle brow movie that I I guess you could give me the case that seeing the cars on the big screen. But to me, that's one that 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 seems to be thinned out unless you're like really. So I don't know. That's, I guess, where I go with on the theaters. It's it's like in a. Well, I mean, you had the stretch of Lion King and uh, Frozen 2 and Aladdin and Avengers Endgame and the new Spider-Man. We have a new Spider-Man coming in June. I think they've held Sony's held back on Venom too. You've got Marvel's gonna is gonna want to come with their with you know their own Disney couple of films are slated to come out too in the theaters. So I think they're going with is it Widow that's coming straight to to the movies? I can't. I know they held back Black Widow. I don't. So yeah, yeah I guess that was potentially going to streaming, but so add that in there. I mean, it was already. 60 70% dominated by by them. You saw in China Seoul had a pretty decent showing. So I mean like they're pretty much back to normal as far as as traffic there. Wonder Woman was a big disappointment, but Seoul for as far as Pixar films go did pretty well in light of the pandemic as well. But it just even without the pandemic it was it was a pretty decent showing. So I don't know, I mean uh there's like this element to post COVID where you're like, I'm going to want to do this. And when I want to do that, I'm going to be like, and it's going to be like this. And then I think, you know, by like Wednesday, you'd be like, you want to go to the movies? Yeah. You know? could, I mean, we'll see. It'll be interesting to see that specifically. Let's hit the last question here, which is, I think it's a little bit regular listener of the podcast. So thank you to Simon Gillette, who this is a little bit of a divergence from Netflix itself, but how much of Netflix's growth depends on AWS cloud infrastructure, especially non-US global endpoints? What do you so Okay, I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> it's always good to say you have no idea when you have no idea. Very good. Okay. So I mean, all I could take the well, if it is my contention, then <laughs> under the current situation, cloud scaling, I mean, Netflix is known for its infrastructure and its engineering. Uh, one thing that I was very interested in, uh, as far as Netflix goes, uh, when I was back in deep in the PagerDuty days, chaos engineering. 
they they pretty much kind of wrote the book as far as uh, what does that mean chaos engineering breaking the system on purpose to to make it more resilient so like if you're running a streaming service like Netflix before you update or anything what what's like one of the key things about it is 99.9999999999% uptime right so Netflix essentially before they roll anything through from a an an old configuration to a new update, they would test crashing it. They would intentionally crash their systems. And they kind of developed this thing called chaos engineering. And there's now there's a couple startups where like people have left Netflix to do chaos engineering as a service. So essentially like if you want the practices that someone with a startup that wants to have resiliency on the level of Netflix to implement the practices they do to make their system more robust, their infrastructure more robust. That was something they were kind of, you know, they're cutting edge in. And they don't get like, I mean, people do talk about it, but they don't get enough. Let's go. I tried to get into it a little bit, enough press for their technology stack. A lot of things that have developed cloud-wise, it's hand in hand with the growth of Netflix, right? They've implemented adopted open source things that they do from 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 day one i mean one of the things that like people like to talk about now because it's been such a successful stock is sp- spinning out of roku which was their asp- initial aspirations in the player market but they've developed a ton of stuff where you could look at it and be like oh why haven't they done more here like why isn't like why didn't they spin out a few people from their chaos engineers as they like to call it, and productize that as call it software as a service. There was a company, Gremlin. It's called Gremlin. Okay. 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 The rise of chaos engineering, February of 2018. And here you go. Yes. What's the guy's name? Andrew's the founder too. Okay. Formerly spent years working at Amazon and Netflix. What have now been dumped chaos engineering principles. Yeah. I mean, there is an element to it where you look at it and you're like, this is like consulting systems integrator. Like, how do you turn this into software? But these guys have gone along those routes. I guess there's certain tests you can run, like in, in a way similar to cyber cybersecurity, if you look at it. But I mean, I don't know how that plays into Netflix's edge. I think they've, they've been cutting edge. We've talked about the fact that this is where you get into economies of scale and like the talent that they have in, internally. You know, people have criticized what went on inside Disney. You have the BAM tech, you have the Hulu tech stack, you have different fights. I don't know if you read the article about that. I recall it. I don't, I don't have it. Yeah. So like inconsistencies there as far as w- which direction you want to drive your technology stack. You saw recently, sure, Rajiv will like this, the Tesla versus, you know, VW software. So VW in an article in the Wall Street Journal about not being able to do OTA updates for the cars and like you not have to bring them back in for the for the new car. And the argument being that I was actually on a, the head of GM Cruise, Kyle Vogt, yesterday. I was listening to a clubhouse with him talking about this stuff because it was definitely front page news. But doing software is hard and the people who do software from the ground up, you know, are better. And well, I mean, that's this has been Netflix's core DNA, right? So when you're Disney or when you're HBO, you may know how to manage talent really well. You may be able to do these things really well, 
but you kind of getting up to snuff on the technology backend infrastructure, let alone right. leading in it, right? You're, you're playing catch up there. And I mean, ironically, Netflix has been playing catch up on what? The content. But that's kind of, it seems that in the content side, hi- hiring the people you need to hire is cut them checks and, and the talent moves. It seems that that's, you can't just instantaneously throw money at fix it. Like I'm sure people will get there, but at doing your, at your tech stack infrastructure. Now, I don't really, I mean, like I said, my initial response is I don't know, but they are definitely a company who, a, a unique part of what you're getting when you invest in this is they're a leader there. Like that kind of defines them. Also culturally, they've always espoused that like they're, you know, like the Goldman Sachs approach. And remember Reed's uh, we want to be back in the office type of guy. Yep. Yeah, He's not a remote work type of guy, even though it's very, it would be very convenient for his business model to be like, we love remote work. <laughs> Stay home. Watch, what, stream as much as you want while you're sitting in and doing and on another you know, meeting. Your afternoon. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, let's leave it there then. Let's not, if, but that's, I think that's good, a good reminder of their tech, their tech leadership, which also reflects their other, the, the advantage they've had in sort of focusing on what they're doing in the streaming space has given, built them a lead that is going to be tough for others to, to yeah, I mean, they've literally up. invented best practices that other people adopt. Right. Because they can raise prices. What can be more critical than have like Netflix can't go down from a customer experience standpoint. Right. It's you've seen like, even if, if like there's like a split second where it skips the audio, you're like, what the hell just happened? (laughs) So they, if they want it to be, you know, from an AWS standpoint of like, by the way, in the process of making, we've decided that we're going to compete with PagerDuty. Yes, they could compete with PagerDuty. They know how to do it, <laughs> right? But I don't think that that's, uh, they're still using PagerDuty. They seem to be a very happy customer. And just like advertising, they ha- seem to have strong opinions on certain markets where they do not believe that they need to go in and play because they're too small or not worth their time. And they think that they have a, I mean, I think these guys still think that they're going to get to like a billion subscribers. Okay. That, that may sound crazy today, but I think they think they, they see a path of one day going into China. They see a path of many things that they're willing to continue at what they're doing in India. Maybe you'll be looking at this being as, as a business that one day sh- splits the US from international. We'll be having those types of conversations, but different types of content, maybe different immersions of content that they're waiting for the technology to get there. They're working on whatever they're working. They, who knows? But when you look at, we, we don't invest based on like, who knows? This is where you look at it today. And I think from the narrative for today, I think they're pretty focused. And I think you could take an interpretation that some of what they delivered to the market as a message yesterday was kind of like a, a shot across the bow of the competition. Of like, hey, enjoy losing money and getting criticism on, you know, at what point are you going to be break even again? Because we can spend this and still drive these types of margins sustainability. They could cut content spend if they wanted to. And there will be a day where that's going to be something where like, you know, that, that, that people talk about. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that goes on right now. I don't know if you're watching Snapchat with paying out 
like a hundred million dollars or whatever a million dollars a day pop up yeah yeah so they're, they're just like you have like kids being like i just made a million dollars off my video on, on spotlight <laughs> and people are like i mean they should have just given it away the way the way mr beast does but either way like you know it's created some decent buzz for them but that's like not a good thing for the industry you know when you look at like the youtube model and you look at what tiktok is doing if somebody is getting a 30 times sales multiple and they've decided they're just going to hand out money because they want some of the traffic, doesn't bode well. So I think Netflix's message yesterday was we've been very deliberate and we continually deliver. And our stock has two decades of track record. So past past performance is, is not indicative of future results, but it's it's hard to argue with 40% at uh, 18 years. That's yeah. 50, which we, it was yeah, 50,000%. Yeah. Cannot, you don't yeah. need too I mean, many like, of those. Like you're, go, you're going to come out and, you know, take a victory lap when you're doing that. And you're also going to put some pressure, like at some point, like, and, and we've seen that. I, and that, I think that's when things get more interesting. We have not really seen much pressure on, on big tech to communicate what they're, how they're measuring their content commitments. Like Ted Lasso, speaking of Ted Lasso, season two is shooting. And they pretty much signaled to you that Ted Lasso is like a, a trilogy. So we're going to have two more seasons and it's done, right? <laughs> and what's so season, Apple's plan there? Season two is they get back to the Premier League and season three is they win the Premier yeah. League. Season three is they win it all, right? And we, <laughs> we, we, we get the journey. And Apple's now told you that you don't have to pay till July. Like if you bought any Apple hardware and you got your free one year of Apple TV Plus, it's been extended another six months. So we don't really know with like this what the what the long term plan with with some of these is, and will there be another wave of consolidation? I mean, people forget when they talk about Disney and what they've done. Disney spent seventy billion dollars on Fox, right? Right. I mean, like they went and bought a lot of content. They bought studios, they bought libraries, they bought, you know, X-Men, they bought the rights to certain things, they bought international distribution, they bought National Geographic, they bought FX, they bought the stake Fox is holding in Hulu, the Simpsons, so on and so forth. So like, you know, they're spending and they're more efficient than Netflix and Netflix is spending $15 billion. But I mean, no, I mean, Fox, you know, Disney spent 70 billion. Disney's essentially spent $100 billion on content in the last, you know, let's call it since 2006, last 15 years acquiring it externally on top of what, what what's being funded internally. Yeah. I mean, it's an expensive game and if he, you know, Disney can monetize, as we discussed, but okay. I let's, let's leave it there. Congrats on the Netflix call and be as, as ever. It's interesting. Well, the only space real to- good call that we had recently was the Acacia. That was, that deserved a congratulations. That's that. The Acacia, I put a little bit of money in that. I didn't do my own work, but you, you called out Acacia, which I mean, the Acacia found me. Uh, I didn't find it. Well, fair enough. Well, no, but you <laughs> you done the work, and then they came yeah, four years ago, and three years ago, whatever it was, two years ago when when Cisco bought them, it was a uh, different world. I mean, look, that was just one where you're like, this very rarely do you get asymmetric things like that just pop up in your face, like. You're always kicking yourself afterwards because I could have done even more and more and more. Like you could unlimited, and with the noise of this market, 
and people trading, you know, everything under the sun, you know, you don't sit there and think, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, I wrote it up. It's $140, $150 stock immediately once you see it on your ticker. And you're surprised by the fact that it didn't trade up to like essentially where Cisco bid. You would you would think from a game theory standpoint that with a $70 cash bid under something that if it was standing alone right now in this current market is worth double, that it would instantaneously gap to like 105, 110, right? Gap to like $75, $76. Yeah. I, I mean, you literally could have bought you. as much as you want. I was, I was, I was sitting there pre-market and I was like, what, like you could just literally buy whatever you want here. But I mean, those, those are, those are, those are the, the, the rare, the rarities. I think Netflix is, I mean, it's great that they, they did exactly what you expected them to do here because they wanted to kind of, they needed to, they needed to flex and they did flex, but financial model wise, does it really, it's another one of these stocks where you look at it and you're like, like what, anybody writing something bearish about it, like what do you, like how are you going to measure that in the immediate term? It's very hard to do. Like let's say their subscriber beat was a million less. Would the stock have reacted any differently? Well, I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it, it, that. I think that's the point. The subscriber nuances are less important at this stage. But at these days, all we care about is. Uh, it's time for Twitter to get it together. Well, that's that's why I I, I put the the initial stake I put in Acacia. I I said screw it. I'll try Twitter. See what happens. So oh boy. Oh kiss it down. boy. But all right, good stuff, Akram. Yeah, we'll see. We've got we've got a lot of other good episodes coming up. So all right, bro. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Razor's Edge. Subscribe to this wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman and at Akram's Razor with suggestions, requests, or anything else. We aim to publish this every Tuesday morning and love to hear from you. If you can share this with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd really be grateful as that will help the podcast grow and improve. This has been a Shortman Studios production. Our theme song is Move On by Soquel. Thank you for listening and see you next week.